It's good to be with you and uh, good to see you. I lived in Somerset for a few years, a while back, a a long while back before April and I got married and uh, interned at Oak Hill Baptist Church and lived in a little parsonage that they had. So I know Somerset well. And uh, as often as I could come back here to see Todd, I try to come back. And it's not just to see Todd or Brother Bill. It's also to visit Sonny's, which I am a huge fan of their sweet barbecue sauce, which I'll purchase a few bottles of today. So, But it's good to be with you. And uh, I was reminded as Todd introduced me, of a couple years ago I was asked to write an article for the magazine Parenting Teenagers published by Lifeway. And they said, we want you to write an article on how you can successfully raise teenagers to know and fear the Lord. My children, my oldest children are eight years old. They're twins. At that time, they were six. I don't feel any more equipped to answer that question or write that article today than I did then. And so I asked them, could I write it from the perspective of a parent of young kids? And this is something that I hope to accomplish, but I can't write from personal experience. I don't have teenagers, but I do know as a college dean kind of the end product as we have college students come to our campus from various family backgrounds. And so I want to share with you today a, from a passage of Scripture and from a very specific point of view, and that is admonishing you as the intellectual gatekeepers of your home to train up your children to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their strength, with all their soul, and with all their mind. And I believe that one of the great challenges for Christian parents that we're going to face is the subtle shifting that is not so subtle anymore, is it? The shifting of a fundamental outlook on life where some of you were raised in a culture that affirmed your Christian worldview. Your grandchildren are not living in that world. Their children will not live in that world. And so I want to speak from a specific passage and a specific point of view. The specific passage is Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I want to focus on one element of this great command. So if you'll turn there with me, and we'll, I'll read, and you could read along silently. But I want to talk to you about loving the Lord your God with all your mind and t- seeking to teach your children, or even some of you who are raising grandchildren, to do the same. This great passage is known as the Shema, which is a Hebrew word for hear. And it comes out of, we will see in the minute, a great command that was given to the children of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we'll start reading in verse 1. Now this is the commandment that, statues, that the statues and rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son, and your son's son. Look at all the generations represented there. You, your son, and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord." The God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Jesus, when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment, quoted out of Deuteronomy. And this expression here that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, that you shall love the Lord your God. I have a hard time not quoting it out of the King James Version. I memorized so much scripture from that translation. I want to say, thou shalt love the Lord your God. But we see here, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. This was an expression that meant the whole person. And when Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy, he added the word mind, not because he was adding to the Old Testament words, but that was in their understanding, that when you said heart, mind, and strength, or heart, soul, and strength, it included the mind, it meant the whole person. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest command? And he said, the greatest command is to love God with all of your heart, mind, strength, and soul, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I heard recently an illustration from an apologist who's become a good friend, and he, he referred to what the Romans did in battle, which was known as the infantry square. And they would form a square, and the, uh, they would be, I guess, firing their arrows. Even later, uh, military tactics involved the formation of a square. But they would be fighting outwards, and you would have literally four distinct walls and they would be trying to keep the enemy away, making sure that they could target the enemy on every front. And should the enemy break through one of those walls, they, the, the chant or the cry would be heard, broken square. One of the walls had been breached and the enemy would make their way in. Now this doesn't make much sense if you think of like four guys standing back to back, you know, a very small square. But if you think of a large square, hundreds of soldiers you can imagine one whole wall, if there's a, three other people facing other directions, when that wall's broken, they wouldn't know initially that it happened. So they would have to cry out, square broken. I think today we need to sound the alarm in the, in the church. The square has been broken. If we think of Jesus' um, quotation from Deuteronomy, I shall love the Lord your God. See, I did it again. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. When you think of the heart, you think of issues of pastoral counseling. Jesus said you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all of your soul. I think of spiritual disciplines and what we do in the church to teach people for their souls to be united first to God and to grow in fellowship with Him. Jesus said you shall love the Lord your God with all of your strength. When we think of strength, we think of the body and how the church ministers to to social needs, to the whole person. But Jesus includes the word mind here. If you think of each one of those words as forming a different wall of the square, there's one wall committed to protecting the heart, one committed to protecting the soul, one committed to protecting the body, and then yet there's a wall committed, if this makes sense, I hope the illustration's communicating, committed to protecting the mind. And if the enemy can find one way in, then they could take down the entire army. I believe the enemy has penetrated through the square, through the mind, and we have let our guards down in the church. 
in so many ways today. If we're going to teach our children to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, we're going to have to train them to think Christianly. Now, let me just say at the very beginning, I don't think intellectual, the intellectual area of our life is, is not all of life. And Christianity is not merely intellectual. Does that make sense? I don't want you to leave here today and think if my kids just know certain facts, then they'll be okay. You know, you do not have better theology than Satan, right? Even the demons understand who God is and tremble in fear. It's not enough to know. We have to act on it. But woe to the person who merely feels and emotes and doesn't know. So the mind isn't all that Christianity is, but without the mind, we are vulnerable to the attacks of Satan. And if you look at in historically what's been called the burned-over district, the burned-over district is in the, the northeast, and it's where the great revivals happened in our history of our nation. And what happened in the wake of these revivals, which many of them were extremely emotional, people were taught to make emotional decisions in many of these historical revivals, and what's called the burned-over district is where the cults rose up in the wake of these emotional revivals. Look at major cults that came right on the heels of great revivals. How could that happen? It can happen when people learn to think merely with their emotion and they turn their brain off. So I think we need to, to sound the alarm today. The mind has been invaded by the enemy. We need to fortify our defenses. I think one of your roles, it's not your only role as parent, but it's the role I'm going to speak to today. And again, I want to just restate, you could leave here today thinking that this is merely an intellectual issue. It's not. But I think too often we downplay the intellectual element. So what I want to do today is to sound the alarm that the enemy is infiltrated, that the enemy has gotten in in an area where we have let our guard down. I want to read a quote that uh, was attributed to Martin Luther, the reformer. And it was not Martin Luther, and we're not even sure exactly who said it. Um, but it's, it's really good, and it's worth repeating. But I have to recognize I'm not entirely sure where the source came from. It was someone years after Martin Luther's life, since we just celebrated Reformation Day, right? Some people call it Halloween. Those, the, October 31st was the, the day that Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the wall. And years later, there were some of his followers, perhaps a fictional account of one of his followers, but they made a really insightful um, comment here. And here's the, the quote. It is the truth which is attacked in any age, which tests our fidelity. If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, Accept precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking. I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christianity. You see what they're saying there? I could declare Christ in every area, but if I'm silent on the area the world's attacking, I'm not being faithful. They go on to write, where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace to him if he flinches at that one point. 
we have to be careful that we are not ignorant of the way Satan is attacking our young people. And I hope to illustrate this here in the coming minutes. Historian Mark Knoll said years ago that the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. In our generation, we have developed a unique, in light of history, a unique approach to the intellectual arguments of the day. And that unique approach is too often denial and ignorance. And it's time for us to wake up because the square has been broken and the enemy will invade if we are not careful and has indeed invaded if you remember the, um, the legendary story of the Trojan horse, the Greeks were uh, unsuccessful in getting into the city of Troy, and after years of struggling, they finally decided to, to build the city a, a great gift, and so they built a Trojan horse, and they took it inside, and there were soldiers hiding inside this horse. One Christian scholar, J.P. Moreland, has said that anti-intellectualism, that's a big word, and here's simply what it means. It means failing to use our mind. J.P. Moreland said that anti-intellectualism is the devil's Trojan horse for the church. That we've let our guard down and we've quit teaching people to think critically. Even sometimes a sermon like this can be seen as unnecessary because we'd rather just hear and admonishment to love Jesus more. Loving Jesus more is very important. In fact, that's what the passage was about. Thou shalt love the Lord. But how do we love him? We love him not just with our soul and with our strength. We love him with our mind. And I want to illustrate this with one study that's actually several years old now, and you've probably actually heard of it. There was a guy by the name of Christian Smith. He was the, a sociologist at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And he did the, one of the largest youth studies on youth religion that had ever been done. And he published it in a book. Uh, Todd's probably quoted from this on occasion, I would imagine. It's a really well-known study. And the, it was published in a book called Soul Searching. And he worked with all these teenagers from across the nation. And he came back with, in his research, he said, I have three main observations about young people in North America when they describe their faith. And he described them in terms of moralistic, young people when they talked about the God they served and worshiped, they basically believed that God just wanted them to be good. You should be somewhat encouraged by that perhaps. They didn't walk away from a Bible study and say, God wants me to be bad. Um, so the opposite of that is not truth, but usually a lie has a little bit of truth in it. So they believe that God's highest value for them was to be good. We understand theologically that you can never be good enough to get to God on your own. I mean, imagine where I'm standing today on the podium, and imagine if the sun, if it were noon and the sun's right above me, above us, who's closer to the sun, me or you? Well, by a few feet, I am. But does it really matter? Imagine if I climbed to the top of the building. Would I then be closer to the sun than you? But would it matter? You know, the theological picture, the biblical picture of us be, trying to be good is like me standing on the platform bragging that I'm closer to the sun than you. Even our best 
deeds and the best life still falls so dreadfully short of what God wants us to be. He demands complete holiness. And that's the power of the cross. That on the cross, God poured out all of his judgment, his holy, righteous wrath in one consolidated place in human history on one person that God poured out the storehouse. He drained the storehouse of his wrath that Jesus completely as your substitute stood in your place and absorbed the wrath God had for you. And I love an illustration that Pastor J.D. Greer gives. He says, imagine standing at the, the Hoover Dam and uh, you're standing there alone as if they would let you do this, I don't know, but you're standing there looking at it and there's a pinhole leak. You see water just spraying out of that, I mean, with great force. I mean, if you were to put your hand in front of it, I mean, it would probably just cut through your flesh. I mean, it's just powerful pouring out of this little pinhole leak. As you watch that wall, you see another little pinhole leak. Water just spraying out with great force. All of a sudden, there's a hairline fracture, and eventually the wall just gives way. There's an ocean of water, a, a ton of water, coming towards you. You will die on impact. And if you don't die on impact, you're going to drown before you know what hit you. Um, but right before it gets to you, a hole opens up in the, in the ground. And every single drop, every, all of the water, all of the tidal wave that's coming towards you is, is sucked into that hole, and you're not even hit by the spray. Can you imagine that? That's what Jesus did on the cross. As he hung on the cross, God emptied the storehouse of his wrath on sin in one consolidated place. That is such a powerful picture the idea that we could somehow be good enough to get to God, the only way we're ever good enough to God is if we're in Jesus who absorbed as a substitute all of God's wrath. So these teenagers felt like they could be good enough to get to God, which is completely contrary to what the Bible teaches about the gospel. The second thing, it was not only was their worldview moralistic, but it was therapeutic. And I know you're probably familiar with these terms. I've seen some people nodding their heads, but it was essentially means this. Teenagers, when they talked about faith in God, ultimately believed that God wanted them to be happy, that happiness was God's highest value for them. You don't have to go very far in the evangelical world to find really big churches filled with people who week after week essentially hear that God wants them to be happy. In fact, one preacher's wife famously said not too many weeks ago that it's all about you. So don't go out and do good for God. Go out and do good for you. Well, that's common in our culture. And in fact, it's usually not that explicit, but it's, it's common that it's there. So they talked when they talked about their belief in God. Essentially, I could summarize it this way, just be happy. Moralistic, I could summarize it with just be good. Therapeutic, I'd summarize it with just be happy. And the final thing that described their worldview was this, that it was deistic or deism, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Deism is a worldview that we don't hear about that much anymore. I was preaching a few years back at the University of Louisville, and I met for the first time in my life real-life deists, which is pretty interesting. I had a, an atheist sitting on one side 
who was a good friend and still is. And then on the other side, this new couple who came in and they had Bibles, surprisingly, and they were listening. I thought, these are Christian kids. I was preaching at the Red Barn at the University of Louisville, um, which is neither red nor is it a barn, but they call it the Red Barn. And it's just a big meeting place on the campus of the University of Louisville. And I would preach there every week for a ministry that my wife and I were a part of. And that building had one office in it. Big meeting space, one office. The one office space was the LGBTQ office, which stands for lesbian, gay, bigender, bigender, transsexual, and queer. And so from time to time during our worship services, we, we never know, we never knew who would show up. And, and that was to God's glory, a wonderful thing, because we just preached the truth and tried to be loving. And on this one occasion, I met this couple afterwards, and I just assumed, because they were listening to me, they were you know, they were tracking with the sermon. They seemed engaged. I thought, finally, the Lord has sent us some believers because up to that point, God had sent us a lot of skeptics, and which was glorious. It was wonderful. But I'm like, yes, you know, here's some Christians. And uh, so I went up to him afterwards, and they said, hi, good to meet you, young man and his girlfriend. We're deists. And they pointed over to the atheist, and they said, we're somewhere between you and him. I've never experienced that in my life. But here's what deists, for the most part, believe. They believe that there is a God, and that's the end of the story. He created the world, and he's no longer involved with his creation. Now, most Christian young people are not true deists. So Christian Smith, when he did his research, was not necessarily saying they don't believe that God is involved. They just don't really believe that God is that involved. In other words, they don't believe God is sovereign. One of the interesting things in this study is that Christian Smith attacked the myth that parents don't have that great of influence on their young people. And one of the things he underscored throughout his study is that the single greatest influence in the young people's beliefs was their parents. So they held a view that God's really not sovereign. I heard someone say one time that sovereignty is kind of like being pregnant. Either you are or you're not. You're not kind of pregnant. Either God is in control of all things or he's not. And scripture clearly says he is. But these young people were living as though God was not that involved in their life. I would summarize this with the words, just be yourself. Just be happy, just be good, and just be yourself. God doesn't really want to inconvenience your life all that much. So when you listen to me say that the the square has been broken. Look at this one study, not that you have to look far, and recognize where did these young people come to believe these things? The study would say they mostly learned it by watching their parents. And they also learned it through churches that didn't clearly preach the Word of God. Thanks be to God that you're in a church that teaches verse by verse, truth by truth, principle by principle, the Word of God. The best remedy to fix the wall is not human philosophy, it's reestablishing a commitment to the total truthfulness of Scripture. The wall has been broken. Who will stand in the gap? We will stand there with our Bibles because it is Scripture that informs the mind. So let me give you some practical things here. First, we must teach our children to love God with their whole being. That includes the mind. We don't want them to be Christian. We don't want them to be Baptist eggheads. That's not the point. Just have all this information up top and nothing, no heart to go with it. 
But there is great danger, I hope I'm making the case today, there is great danger in teaching them to be all emotive, all feeling, and no head at all. Look at the history of cults in America. They followed in the wake of revivals. So we must teach our children to love God with their whole being. There are a couple reasons I think we don't do this. First of all, I think we doubt the power of the gospel. I really think one of the biggest reasons we don't do this is that we doubt the power of the gospel. And here's how it's evidence. I think we sometimes treat the gospel like it's a family heirloom that must be wrapped in bubble wrap, and we store it, we put it in a box, and we put it up in the attic, and let's just keep it there so nobody breaks it. And when it's time to pass it down to the future generation, we'll get it out of the attic and we'll take it out, unwrap it, and give it to them, and then we expect them to wrap it back up and keep it somewhere safe. That is a wrong view of the gospel. Amen? That is a wrong view of the gospel. Charles Spurgeon said the gospel is more like a lion. I've never heard of anyone defending a lion. Set it loose, it'll defend itself. Okay, take the gospel out of the, bu- the bubble wrap. You don't have to be afraid. At the end of history, the gospel will not be found wanting. Let all men be found liars and God be proved true. He will not be found wanting. At the end of history, the Bible will not be proven inadequate. It'll be proven true. God will validate his word and his gospel as his saving power. So we have to quit looking at the gospel as something that might break. If we let the kids play with it, have you ever been in someone's house? Yeah, I know my wife and I have young kids, and sometimes you'll be invited into someone's home, and they'll have breakable things. And I'm always so nervous, you know, especially our, our one-year-old, our daughter, Addie, just doesn't stop, and she grabs everything. And so you want to, like, move this stuff to protect it and keep it safe. And I think sometimes we treat the gospel that way. I think deep down we have a fear that the gospel can't really stand up. Let me encourage you today, the gospel is neither intimidated nor overshadowed by any rival truth claim. The gospel's not running scared, (laughs) it's not panicking, the gospel can stand up. Here's another reason, I think that we think that just believing is virtuous. We think it's a good thing or a value to just believe. Jesus called us to have a childlike faith. He never called us to have a childlike mind. And there's a difference, isn't there? So sometimes we are afraid the gospel can't stand up, and other times we think that it's really virtuous. If I just close my eyes, close my ears, and say, I just believe the gospel, I'm not going to look at what other people are saying. I'm not going to read what other people think about Christians. I'm just going to believe. I'm just going to believe. No, open your eyes. The gospel will lead you to properly respond. Peter says we must always be ready to give an answer of the hope that's in us. That doesn't mean that you have to always be ready to give an answer for any question that anyone could ever ask you about anything of Christianity, right? (laughs) Because none of us would be prepared to do that. Most of all, I wouldn't be. That's not what Peter said. He said, you must always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. So to refer back to my friend Larry Taunton, an apologist, he defines it as the turf you're standing on. I could defend the hope that's in me. Jesus has changed my life, and I could tell you why. Now, as you study 
And as you grow and as you learn, your turf will get bigger and you'll be able to defend more and more ground of Christianity. But at the very basic level, you should be able to give a defense for why Jesus changed your life. Now, I want to do two things in the remaining time. First of all, I want to give you five observations about what has happened um, in us losing our mind just really quickly. And this comes actually from an article by a um, young man named Justin Taylor writing for a website called The Gospel Coalition. And I'm going to give these to you really quickly because I think they're helpful. And then after that, I'm going to, in rapid fire, give you seven practical ways that you could teach your children to love the Lord with their mind. So here's the first, five observations on anti-intellectualism, which again, I know is a big phrase, but it simply means not thinking or turning our mind off. In Justin Taylor's article, the first observation he has is that it's less about aptitude and more about attitude. Anti-intellectualism is less about aptitude and more about attitude. In other words, some of you may be sitting here today and say, you know, I've, I've, maybe my education has been limited or maybe I didn't have that high of an IQ test score or whatever. Well, let me remind you today that loving, you're commanded to love the Lord your God with all of your mind as well. And it's not about aptitude. It's really about your attitude. Having an attitude that comes to the Lord and says, I want to study your word. I want to understand it. And I want to be faithful in defending the gospel. Peter says... I've been put here for the defense of the gospel. That's what Peter says in, uh, in 1 Peter 3.16. Os Guinness, a Christian apologist, made this statement. I think it's helpful. He said, anti-intellectualism is a disposition that discounts the importance of truth in the life of the mind. Sometimes we might think it's more virtuous. It's not, and that's the second thing. The second issue is this. The anti-intellectualism is a problem in the Western world. So first of all, it's not about aptitude. It's more about attitude. Second, this is a problem in our broader culture. Listen to this quote by Neil Postman. Americans are the best entertained and quite likely the least well-informed people in the Western world. We're the most entertained and quite likely the least well-informed people in the Western world. Justin, in his article, his third observation, is it's not only a problem in the Western world, it's a problem in the church. A long time ago, the eclectic Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer talked about what he called the line of despair. And he said that you could see, if you want to know what's going to impact the church in coming years, look at what's going on at universities today. He said it usually starts in the philosophy department. And then from there, you could trace its way into high culture. And then from there, you could trace it into popular culture. And then from there, you could trace a line down to the church. Usually what's a problem in the culture will eventually become a problem in the church. Harry Blaines wrote, the Christian mind has succumbed. Listen to this. Has, the Christian mind has given in to the secular drift with a degree of weakness unmatched in church history. That's alarming. The Christian mind has given into the secular drift with a degree of weakness unmatched in church history. 
The square is broken, and we must respond. Here's the fourth observation Justin gives in his article. Anti-intellectualism is not virtuous. I already said this. We must quit thinking that it's a helpful thing for Christians to say, I just believe what I believe. I don't want to worry about anything else. It's not virtuous. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, said, God is no fonder of intellectual slackers than of any other kind of slackers. (laughs) They're all lumped together. And to be an intellectual slacker is the same as someone who's physically lazy. To be intellectually lazy is not a virtue. Final observation in Justin's article is this. The anti-intellectualism should be resisted with a Godward passion. That means a passion that's driving us towards God. It should be resisted with Godward passion and intellectual consecration to the Lord. We must resist it. We must push back. We must fight intellectual laziness. If we care about future generations understanding what the Christian worldview is, J. Gresham Macon said, The Christian religion flourishes, not in the darkness, but in the light. The true remedy of unbelief is consecration of intellectual power to the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I've quoted a lot of people, and I may have lost you along the way. I've quoted a couple studies. But I want to drive us back to Scripture Because in Deuteronomy, we have the great command that Jesus said is the greatest of all the commands, and it's a command to love God with all of our being. So statistics aside, big words aside, we are called to lead our children to love God with their whole being, and that includes the mind. And maybe today you're not going to leave here with a silver bullet, a surefire remedy to make sure your kids never wander from the Christian faith a secret potion that you could store up and, you know, get your kids to sip it, slip it into their milk, you know, when they're not paying attention. But we have been given something powerful, have we not? See, we have to come back to the gospel. And at the end of the day, they can blaspheme and they can make fun of us. But God will not be found wanting. And if you really believe the gospel, then we shouldn't fear. I want to give you seven just really quick practical ways to help your children love God with all their mind. First, help your children see the big picture of the Bible. I I sometimes think the way we teach the Bible, and this isn't true here, but it's true, it would be true in some churches. And I say it's not true here because I actually know your curriculum. And I think your curriculum is wonderful and uh, the way, even what, what Todd's doing in youth ministry is a wonderful thing to cap off the experience of children's ministry that's by design functions with what happens in student ministry. And when students graduate here, they get a three-ring binder of what they've been taught for the last several years. That's wonderful. In their last senior year, if you still do it this way, they look at worldview and apologetics. I think sometimes we treat the Christmas story, or the Christmas stories. We, I'm going to mention Christmas, but isn't it funny there are already Christmas commercials on TV. So I guess my mind is already there. For me, once you hit November 1st, it's okay to listen to Christmas music. So fire up Johnny Mathis or Bing Crosby, whoever you want to listen to. But here's the reason I mentioned Christmas. There is a point. I think sometimes we we teach the individual stories like they're Christmas ornaments, but we never give them a tree to hang those ornaments on. 
So they, they know the story of Goli- David and Goliath, and they know the story of the lepers, and they know the story of a parable Jesus told, but they don't have a framework to hang it on. And so we have to help children see the big picture. And if I were to summarize these in four words, they're four words I'm sure you've heard before, and they're not original to me, but it's creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Consummation means all of history being consumed and the history is heading somewhere that God will bring human history to an end and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and he will make all things new. God created the world. We've rebelled against him. Jesus has come to die in our place and one day he will return. If we give students a framework for understanding the Bible, when they're in a situation and they can't quote a specific story, or a specific Bible verse, they have a framework for which to, from which to respond. So quick example, when someone says there's so much evil in the world, there can't be a God. They would say, well, you know, evil seems to make good sense from a Christian perspective. God created the world. We've rebelled against him, bringing about the curse of sin and death. Evil makes perfect sense in a Christian worldview. Not only do we have an answer for evil, creation, fall, We have a remedy, redemption and consummation. In the atheistic worldview, morality and evil don't even make sense. They're ultimately illusions. Let me give you one quick resource if you have young children. We have loved using the Jesus Storybook Bible with our kids because it's it's better for younger kids. Our our eight-year-olds are now kind of graduated from it. In fact, Isaiah, our reader, is just reading through the Old Testament. We came a Bible, and I, I looked over the other day, and he had been started in Genesis, and he was um, towards the end of Genesis, which is bringing about all kinds of questions that we're dealing with, which is great and wonderful. But the Jesus Storybook Bible does a good job of painting a picture of the big framework of Scripture. Second, help your children see the meaning of the Bible and not just a nice moral story. Help your children understand what the Bible's actually saying. Instead of reading it, and that would be an example of my eight-year-old, he does understand a lot of what he's reading, but what I want to do is help him get to it and help him figure out what the meaning is and not make David and Goliath just about how you could beat the giants in your world, but to help place it within the broader theme of what God's doing in Scripture, of how it's a picture of even Christ and what Christ would do on our behalf. I would give other examples if we have more time, but you, you guys see these kind of examples in a right way as you hear it taught and preached that the point of every Bible story isn't how you can have your best life now. Third, practical tip, talk about your entertainment. Talk about your entertainment. I want to keep this as broad as possible because I don't want to leave here saying only watch this rated movie or only do this or this is the right company. You know, you can watch anything by Pixar but nothing by DreamWorks or any. That is between you and the Lord. Well, let me just tell you this, whatever convictions you have, you need to think through those. That's kind of the point of today. But make sure you're talking about the commercials your kids see. You're talking about the movies they see. Now, to go back to an earlier quote, we have way too much entertainment. But that is an aside. Let's just, let's start by saying when we do have entertainment, whatever it is, we're going to talk about it and help them critique it, and analyze it. And another way to say this is this. Use culture to point your children to God. 
Use culture to point your children to God. So when there's a guy sitting in a, a fishing boat, opening a aluminum can of beer, takes a big drink, and he says, it just doesn't get any better than this. You don't have to throw up your hands and say, ah! But you can say, you know what? If that's the best that life is, what is it really saying about this individual? And to help them understand that for a lost person, this is the best it gets. But for a Christian, this is the worst it gets. So use entertainment. In fact, in Deuteronomy, it says, as you walk along the way to teach them about God. Fourth practical thing, commit to be first. That sounds self-serving. Commit to be first. I've a, a, had a mentor in Nashville, Tennessee, who is a true philosopher. I don't think he had a job. I, he just kind of floated around and did philosophy, and he's now with the Lord. He was a godly man, but he actually did. He, he did um, have a foundation and a nonprofit that he was a part of, but he spent a lot of time mentoring people, and he mentored me. And one of the things he said to me was, or taught me, was what he called the law of first mention. And he said the person to, to mention a controversial topic and teach on it first always carries a certain level of authority on that topic. He said one of the things you need to do in your ministry is to try to be the first to talk about certain things, or he specifically meant my family, so the children aren't learning about sex at school, they're learning about it from the home. The children aren't learning about Darwinian evolution exclusively in the school, they're learning about it from home. So commit to be first. That means you have to be intentional. That means you have to study the curriculum of their school. That means you have to anticipate the conversations they're going to have, but commit to be first. And when you're not first, be a first responder. If you don't get there first and someone beats you to a conversation, then commit to be the first responder who immediately is willing to talk about it. Number five, I hope this encourages you. Number five, let them see you grow. Let them see you grow. Let your children see you grow. Let your grandchildren see you grow. If you leave here today and you think, I'm a little discouraged, I'm never going to have time to get a PhD in Christian apologetics, that's okay. In fact, if everybody did that, the church would fall apart because you all would move away. We need you here doing what you do. That's not God's calling for everybody, and there are a whole lot of unemployed people with PhDs and apologetics. So that's not my point. I don't want you to leave here and think you have to do that. But here's what you should do. You should be growing. It doesn't matter where you are. You can grow from there. So let your children see you grow. You may not have all the answers, but if they see you searching for them, that's going to speak volumes to the faith you place in the gospel. Number six, pray for them and with them. Pray for them and with them. One of the fun things we like to do at night is we will get our twins, and my wife and I will kneel down at their bed, and we will pray, and we pray for them while we're praying with them. We'll pray that God opens Isaiah's heart and Micah's heart and Josiah's heart, that they come to know him at a young age. I did a wedding not long ago, and uh, they asked me to pray. I guess it was a couple of years ago now. They asked me to pray, and Isaiah ran up, and he said, can I pray? And I said, sure. And so we're at this party, and or the after the, whatever they call that, the reception, I suppose. And Isaiah gets the mic and he prays. I want to pray for everybody here, Lord. Thank you for the food. And I pray that everybody comes to know you at a young age. <laughs> because he hears us pray that for him on a regular basis. So pray for them and pray with them. Here's the final thing, number seven. Preach 
and trust the gospel. Preach it to yourself, preach it to your children, and rest in the fact that it is the power of God unto salvation. If I could close with this story, um, we were doing an event at the University of Louisville, and we went to the, um, I'm right at time, so I'll cut it off. Um, Long story short, we had set up a big banner where normally a lot of street preachers would spend their time, and we have some street preachers in Louisville whose tactics are less than winsome. (laughs) I'll just say that. There's some great street preaching. I just don't know that any of those folks made it to our campus. And so there are people who had really made a lot of people mad in an unnecessary way. The gospel's offensive enough. It doesn't need any additional offense. And so we went to that very place where this one particular street preacher had, had made very rude comments to young ladies and he and his wife alike. And we, we put up a big banner and it just said, Christianity, true or false? And at first we had people kind of making fun of us because they didn't know what we were going to do. And we spent the whole day there just interviewing people. And they would come up, what are you guys doing? And we'd say, answer the question. We just want to know your thoughts. And there was one young lady who said to us, she said, well, I, she said, if you asked me that two years ago, my freshman year, I would have told you false. She said, but this last year, my brother was a high school student, loved the Lord, and he died in a car wreck. She said, my parents called me and told me of his death. She said, I took off that mask of atheism that I had put on my freshman year. She said, I didn't believe atheism was really true. It's just everybody else was, so I was. She said, Christianity is true. And I was reminded in that moment that even though you might see some discouraging things on the surface, at the end of the day, the gospel is still the power of God unto salvation. And of this gospel, may we never be ashamed. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your goodness. I pray that you would help us to hear and obey that you are the Lord God, sovereign over all things. Pray that you'd help us to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and with all of our mind, and to teach our children to do the same. For you alone are worthy of all of our being. Help us to be faithful to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.